0: I was a Barbie girl. You used to love setting
3: everything up and putting everything in place, and then you would kind of role play and act out. Um, You would especially get excited when the catalog would come out, and they'd have all the latest Barbie stuff in the catalog. And I think you went through and marked everything in there, for Barbie,
0: Do you know why I liked Barbie so much? No, I don't. I, I don't. I, I really don't. That's my mom, Cheryl Workowski. We're sitting in my childhood bedroom with my niece, Chloe Esterhai. How long can you play Barbies for? Uh, 30 minutes to an hour. And how many Barbies would you say that you have? Um, a lot. Like, two toads full.
3: And we get... For our birthdays, sometimes, like when we ask for the Barbies, we add them to our collections of them. So, yeah.
0: we are three generations of Barbie lovers. Do you remember your first Barbie? Yes, I do. It was the
3: 1959 Barbie, and I still have it. Um, back when I was growing up, we had a few Barbies, not a lot, and most of the clothes were homemade my mom would knit clothes for us for the barbies
0: you had a story about a girl on your street who had like all the barbies can you tell me about her yes she lived down at the end of
3: the row and she had uh barbies and we could look at her barbies and she had real clothes real barbie clothes not homemade clothes And she had everything sorted out in baggies and everything. And we could look at them, but we couldn't touch. So we would just go down there and watch her pull everything out, my sister and I. And we would just go there and just look at it and drool over all the beautiful Barbie stuff she had. And, you know, it was like, oh, you just sit there and wonder of all the Barbie stuff.
0: Over the years, Barbie has become a controversial touchstone of my childhood, Was she a useful tool for acting out all the stories that lived in my head? Or was she a problematic size zero that didn't help any of my body issues? Was she both, and was that okay? I'd largely left Barbie behind after high school. But then Greta Gerwig, a, let's face it, feminist icon, announced she was making a Barbie movie.
3: Since the beginning of time, since the first little girl ever existed, There have been dolls, but the dolls were always and forever baby dolls.
0: Until... To say this movie has taken off would be an understatement. It has locked the culture in a vice grip with no sign of slowing down. Tens of thousands of people have bought pre-sale tickets. The internet exploded with memes. The marketing for this movie is nothing short of genius and prolific. It's been linked as half of a double feature with Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, leading so many people to ask, what's the best order to watch these movies in a double feature? Maybe the movie is taking off because it's pure candy confection fun done on a big budget with huge movie stars in an era when we all desperately need to go party. But there's also something about Barbie herself. She of the blonde hair and cinched waist and never-ending closet. Originally released in March of 1959, Barbie was created by Ruth Handler and sold for three dollars. Now, there are countless iterations of Barbie, clothes, accessories, and friends, and a single vintage doll can sell for thousands. I wanted to know why. Why does Barbie still endure? Why do adults still collect Barbies? And why do children still play with them? How has this toy managed to survive decades of time and multiple waves of feminism and huge shifts in how we think about women? M.G. Lord has pondered these questions and more. Her book, Forever Barbie, takes a critical look at what makes Barbie, Barbie. And M.G. is the co-host of LA Made, The Barbie Tapes, from LAist and SoCal Public Radio. That podcast is out now. It's a great podcast with tons of interviews that M.G. recorded over her years of covering Barbie. I'm Shayna Roth, and you're listening to The Waves. After the break, MG Lord and I dig into how Barbie went from a girl in a swimsuit to an icon. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our feed. We send out new episodes every Thursday morning. While you're there, you should check out our other episodes, too. Last week, we did a whole episode about the Women's World Cup, which is starting very soon. It's a great episode. and really tells you everything you need to know about the cup and why you should be watching. The Waves is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shayna Roth, and I am joined now by M.G. Lord. M.G., thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh thank you so much for inviting me.
0: I'm curious what it is that you like about Barbie. What is it that has always drawn you to her such that, you know, you've been talking about Barbie and looking into Barbie for decades.
2: I know, isn't that appalling?
0: <laughs> no, I think it's great. I love people who have passions.
2: No, but what, a lot of things intrigue me about Barbie. First off, you know, it is an amazing business story. Ruth Handler is a is a figure She has a great rise, fall redemption story. She's the baby in a family of 10 children, Polish Jewish immigrants in Denver. She and her husband, Elliot Handler, her high school sweetheart, moved to Los Angeles. And with not Elliot, but Elliot's friend, she starts a toy company, um, Mattel. And then she has the brilliant idea to create Barbie, which just takes off and puts this toy company Mattel on the map. She creates Barbie and makes a fortune, turns Mattel into a top company. Mattel goes public. Then Mattel has a little bit of, you know, it has a little bit of downtime and and she gets into a little trouble by fiddling with the book. Specifically, she pleads no contest to conspiracy, mail fraud and lying to the SEC. But she assured me that it, you know, that, well, that she wasn't guilty, that, you know, in fact she had gotten bad advice. And never mind, she does, she is forced out of the company that she and her and her husband started. And this occurs in 1975. Other people would be wiped out by something like that, devastated. But she flares right back. This was the 1970s, you know, uh, she had had breast cancer. It was not commonplace at that time for women to have reconstructive surgery after breast cancer. And the prostheses, the breast prostheses were really inadequate at that time. So Ruth, in the same way that she just, you know, focused her gimlet eye on the possibility of Barbie, never mind that others were aghast by a doll with breasts. What she figured out was that rests are like shoes. There's a right one and a left one, and she made a second fortune with the company that she called Nearly Me, that was sold to Kimberly Clark either at the end of the '80s or the '90s. So she's amazing. The business story is amazing, but also the way that what what intrigued me in the '90s was was that my generation, you know, people who had had the first set of Barbie dolls had grown up. And a lot of them were visual artists and writers, writers like Anne Holmes, who wrote the story, A Real Doll. And they were using Barbie imagery in, in their work. And it was clear that Barbie was more than just a common product. She had absolutely invaded the inner lives of children and my own inner life. It could have meaning, um, to people beyond the meaning imposed on it by its manufacturer.
1: Barbie,
2: you're beautiful. You make me feel my Barbie doll is really real.
0: Barbie first came out way back in 1959, and the first commercial was very classical, elegant. You've got Barbie in a wedding dress, very prominently featured,
2: Someday I'm gonna be exactly like you Till then I know just what I'll do Barbie, beautiful
3: Barbie I'll make believe that I am you You can tell it's Mattel.
0: You had, in some cases, a front row seat to that early Barbie mania. What was the initial reception culturally to Barbie? And what was, I guess, her purpose, for lack of a better term?
2: Purpose is really interesting. I mean, basically, her purpose was consumption. Um I mean this could go in a bunch of different directions but Ruth Handler's original concept for the doll was was razor and razor blades that the doll would be sold at a low price point but then you'd have to buy expensive outfit after expensive outfit soon followed by expensive cars and expensive houses. I mean she was as expensive to keep as a Trump wife or something along those lines and they brought it to toy fair in March of 1959. And it looked like this little 11 and a half inch sex symbol was gonna bomb. (laughs) The male buyers were, you know, hard to believe because the whole atmosphere at Toy Fair in those days was very, I think, sexually charged. It was not about a bunch of kids. It was male buyers and almost stewardess-like or Vanna White like people ministering to the booths where the toys were displayed. Anyway, little little Barbie in her zebra striped bathing suit left a lot of buyers cold, especially the buyers, buyer for Sears, you know, which in those days wasn't a failed store, but a huge empire. He said no. A lot of stores said no. But Mattel, cunningly, back in 1955. Had risked its entire net worth to advertise directly to children via television. They risked the network to buy time on the very popular Mickey Mouse Club program. This was for another product, a burp gun, not Barbie. But they, you know, but they had this system down, this advertising, this messaging directly to kids. So the buyers didn't buy all of them. But it was like a like a slow build that they, it was introduced in March. By the time school was out, though, and kids had time on their hands to watch TV and watch those commercials, it turned into a phenomenon. Little girls wanted that little sexual thing <laughs> to put clothes on, to pretend to be an adult. I believe they sold 300,000 units that first year. Ruth Andler never lost faith in Barbie, and she was vindicated.
0: You wrote a new preface in the 2004 paperback edition of your book, Forever Barbie, the 10-year anniversary of the book's publication, And even in those 10 years, a lot had changed with Barbie. She'd broken up with Ken. Mattel had had a lot of corporate shakeups. Bratz dolls had come out and been a huge thing for a moment. But still, Barbie was enduring, and she still endures today. And I I think you honed in on a really interesting reason why you called Barbie – the salutorian never the valedictorian always second place to the hot new toy but still remaining constant and you called this aspect of barbie quote the business of graciously coming in second of not being pushy or grabby a component of femininity can you unpack that for us because i thought that was fascinating
2: well Barbie does does deliver kind of a conflicted message to kids and to adults and to anyone who looks at her. I mean on the one hand she is a powerful independent woman and she's had well now I mean even more than in 2004 with the remodeling of all the bodies in 2016 she's diverse she's had all these jobs. She's got an impressive resume but there is all you know there is always that sort of faux You know, come in second, kind of thing that's part of femininity. This is my message to the Barbie haters, which is that femininity is the problem and Barbie is the scapegoat. And femininity, of course, doesn't really have that much to do with any kind of anatomical femaleness. It's an idea, it's a set of coded behaviors that signal something about womanhood. And in a way, Barbie is kind of a teaching tool, really for the performance of femininity.
0: Barbie is continuing this trend of resilience that we have seen from her over the last many decades and maybe even exceeding expectations today. The Greta Gerwig Barbie movie comes out the week that this is airing and it's expected to just really take over the box office despite there being a writer's and actor's strike. That front-end Barbie marketing is really paying off. Hi,
1: Barbie! Hi, Ken! Hi Barbie! Hi Barbie! Hi Barbie!
3: Hi Barbie! Hi Barbie! Hi Barbie! Hi Ken! Hi Ken!
0: I feel like one of the ways that Barbie stays relevant is through evolution. We've seen Barbie's stylings change through the decades. You mentioned in 2016, Barbie got a sort of shape change. They've started having different body sizes and body types for Barbie, different nationalities, different accessories.
3: Have you heard what's happened? Barbie's changed. Barbie's new and different.
0: Hi, I'm Judy. I want you to meet new superstar Barbie doll with long street hair. my waist, my arms move to the beat. Doing Cool, <laughs> where'd you get that? Introducing iMessage Girls. I'll Is that enough for Barbie to keep remaining relevant, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the
2: road? I could answer this in a bunch of different ways. But, you know, my pet argument is that Barbie is kind of eternal, that she's a space age recasting of a Stone Age fertility totem, that she's an emblem of a kind of, well, you know, a feminine essence, you know, a Jungian archetype. There's a kind of wordless power to that figure. Of course, it totally helps that Barbie both shapes and responds to the marketplace, and you could argue that um, those bodies are almost a response to um, fourth-wave feminism, I guess it's called, which kind of got started online around 2012 and dealt a lot with intersectionality, which would explain the, the many different ethnicities, because I guess intersectionality deals with oppression related to, you know, race, class, sexual orientation, and so forth. And the big one, body positivity, that there is no one ideal body. Now, nobody at Mattel... you know, in the 30 years or more that I have have been, you know, looking at this, no one will identify as a feminist, but I think that's because they don't want to state the obvious, um, especially over time. I think she's I think she really is kind of a, a feminist artifact. We're going to take a break here,
0: but if you want to hear more from myself on another topic, you should check out our Slate Plus segment. Every week we've been talking about season two of HBO's and Just Like That. This week we're talking all about episode six of the Sex and the City sequel. If you're not a Slate Plus member, please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and tons of bonus content of shows like The Waves. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shayna Roth, and I'm here with M.G. Lord. M.G., I want to talk about the naysayers of Barbie. You wrote in your book, quote, Intense feelings about Barbie do not run exclusively toward love. For every mother who embraces Barbie as a traditional toy and eagerly introduces her daughter to the doll, there is another mother who tries to banish Barbie from the house. There doesn't seem to be a lot of conversation about people being indifferent to Barbie. What is it about this essentially children's toy that generates such intense feelings?
2: I would say it's it's because Barbie is a real Rorschach test. People project their fears, their prejudices, their love onto Barbie. She's not an innocuous little thing. You know, even with all the different ethnicities and hair textures and professions and everything now, She's still kind of glamorous. My co-host on the on the podcast, who is 30, we met because, because she had been a producer on an, an NPR show called Latino USA, and she wanted to do a little investigation into the Frida Kahlo Barbie, which she did not love. She thought it was yassified, a word I never normally used in conversation. And she kind of is. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it's Frida Callow, but it's Frida Callow through a kind of lens of um, corporate feminism. So it is sort of the sanitized Frida Callow. But I, I, actually, I actually think that Mattel's series of the Inspiring Woman series, you know, there's a Jane Goodall, there's an Ida B. Wells, there's a Rosa Parks, there's Katherine Johnson, the NASA mathematician from Hidden Figures. I mean, I think Mattel is self-consciously, you know, putting these out there for mothers who might be hesitant.
0: You touched on Barbie's origin story, which I find to be a really interesting part of all of this, especially when people try saying that Barbie is anti-women or not feminist, because the origin story, the business side of this is really deeply progressive and woman-friendly. Barbie was created, as you mentioned, by Ruth Handler. You know, she was created by women for women. And you spoke to Ruth before she died, and she said that she was inspired to make Barbie by watching her daughter play with her dolls. And here's a clip from your podcast, L.A. Made the Barbie Tapes.
3: There was a doll before Barbie. She had a fat tummy. Really was quite homely, uh, not pretty, not shapely. And her clothing, she had dressed, she was a dress-up doll.
2: But they were full-bellied and pudgy. They had little girls' bodies, and yet you were supposed to pretend that they were teenagers.
0: So when people say that Barbie is problematic, are they missing something?
2: I have a prefatory quote from Simone de Beauvoir about and mothers and daughters and ambivalence around femininity. The daughter for the mother is at once her double and another person. She saddles her child with her own destiny, a way of profoundly laying claim to her own femininity, and also a way of revenging herself for it. The same process is to be found in pederast drug addicts, in all who at once take pride in belonging to a certain confraternity yet feel humiliated by the association. Femininity is just this weird thing. And ambivalence about femininity, I think, is what makes the hunk of plastic so either loved or hated. Or And I think there are still people who are indifferent to it.
0: Do you think Barbie will always be controversial? And is that maybe part of the reason why she continues to endure?
2: Oh, absolutely. She means different things at different times with just, you know, the beginning of feminism, the ascendancy of the second wave feminism. She was hated because Gloria Steinem sort of called her the, um, you know, that she was like the incarnation of the feminine mystique that Betty Friedan had written about. But different times, you know, in different times, these ideas around gender become very different. I think that Gerwig has chosen really the right lens in which to look at Barbie. A camp sensibility, you know, that a camp is all about artifice, exaggeration, satire. A thing is never really a thing. It's a thing in air quotes. (laughs) In a way, Barbie is never really a thing. She's a thing in air quotes.
0: I find it so fascinating having this conversation with you after digging through some of the early reactions to Barbies. There's been some right-wing, as you can expect, pieces about how Barbie is getting wokeified and don't tell the kids, but it's actually feminist and maybe that's a bad thing. You kind of have to make a feminist Barbie movie in order to tell a Barbie story because that's who Barbie is. She's just always been a bit more low-key about it.
2: She really is a symbol of kind of an ancient matriarchal religion. She came into existence in 1959, two years before Ken. She she came before Ken, the way that the goddess religions came before patriarchal, monotheistic, Judeo-Christian um, religions, Judeo-Christian monotheism. And I think most pointedly, goddess cults were often ministered to by eunuch priests, which makes Ken a eunuch priest in a goddess cult.
0: <laughs> Somebody tell Ryan Gosling that's his true motivation. Because
3: <laughs> I'm just Ken, anywhere else I'd be 10. Is it my destiny to live
0: and die a life of blonde fragility?
2: I'm looking forward to seeing the movie. It's interesting for me because I think what Greta Gerwig is, she's like 39-ish, right? So she would have played with the dolls from the early 90s when I really began looking at them. That pink color, that toxic fuchsia, the early dolls did not have toxic fuchsia. That sort of came into existence in the 80s. And the look, it seems like the look of the whole movie would be the look of Her childhood, (laughs) which is interesting to me, and it kind of um, supports my idea that these plastic things and their worlds can invade the inner lives of kids. And then when they grow up, they process this imagery through visual art like that movie that we all can't wait to see.
0: M.G. Lord is the co-host of LA Made, the Barbie tapes from LAist and SoCal Public Radio. She also has a fantastic book out on Barbie called Forever Barbie. M.G., this has been such an interesting, educational, fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on The Waves.
2: Thank you. I had a lot of fun.
0: That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself, Shayna Roth. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer and Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We would love to hear from you. Please email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. Hey, Waves listeners, it's Shayna Roth. Your Slate Plus segment this week is another episode of our weekly and just like that recap. Every week from now until the end of August, I'll be taking over your weekly plus segment to talk about season two of the Sex and the City sequel series with your favorite Slatesters like Daisy Rosario, Heather Schwedell, Luke Winky, and more. If you're not currently a Slate Plus member, you can sign up now by going to slate.com slash thewavesplus to get bonus content for The Waves, along with all of the other Slate podcasts. You'll also get unlimited access to the Slate site. No hitting that pesky paywall. Go to slate.com slash thewavesplus to learn more and sign up now. slate.com slash thewavesplus. Hey, Waves listeners, this segment contains spoilers for, and just like that, episode six. Welcome to The Waves. This is our, and just like that, recap, episode six, Miranda in Splitsville. I'm Shayna Roth, senior producer at Slate.
1: And I'm Daisy Rosario, senior supervising producer of audio here at Slate. Shayna, I'm excited to talk to you.
0: <laughs> I'm really excited about this because... While we have been recapping this show every week, this is the first time that you have come back for another recap. And I think it's great because you and I did episode one together and now we're on episode six, which is more or less the halfway point. So I want to start out by asking you, Daisy, what have you thought of season two so far?
1: It's getting better for me. It's growing on me. And I think some of that is just the characters kind of finding you know, their groove. and But yeah, I mean, I think it seems like the season is going to cover a year based on some weather stuff that is a huge part of this episode. Very odd weather patterns going on here. (laughs) Yeah, I think we're just taking these huge jumps in time, but they're not quite explaining them. Like they're letting them happen with cues about holidays and weather. And so sometimes it's like an episode will feels like it has been two weeks since the last episode, and then with these more recent episodes, it's l- clearly like months between episodes. So it's that part of it's a little confusing. Like I said, it's just a ride. I'm gonna go on no matter what. But I do think, like you know, I think I said it last time. Like I think of this show overall. As kind of this fever dream. If it were more Sex in the City, they would have called it Sex in the City, but there's a reason they call it something else, and I, I think that this episode and the last couple of episodes leading up to it really got me to a place where, like, mentally I realized, like, okay, I think of this fever dream as starting with the second movie, and we're in, like, an alternate timeline that began with the second movie. <laughs>
0: like... That was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to slate.com/thewavesplus to become a Slate Plus member today. slate.com/thewavesplus.